Welcome to the second edition of Electro Library Live. Recordings from the literary events hosted by the Stonehill College English Department and Creative Writing Program in partnership with the Chet Ramo Literary Series. In this episode, we are joined by poets Ocean Vong and Ricky Laurentis. The introduction is by Amber Brooks, Professor of Creative Writing at Stonehill College, and a conversation with Ocean and Ricky follows the reading. Thank you all for coming tonight. I want to welcome you to the annual Ramo Lecture Series, which is named in honor of a very celebrated faculty member here, Professor Emeritus of Physics and Astronomy, Chet Ramo. In addition to being a renowned professor of physics and astronomy, Chet had a science and nature column in the Boston Globe for over 20 years, and he authored numerous books about science, nature, religion, as well as several novels. And we are lucky enough to still see Chet from time to time and are so grateful to him for this series. Tonight's a very special night because we have not only one, but two poets, brilliant poets here, Ricky Laurentis and Ocean Vuong. Ricky Laurentis was raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. He's the author of Boy with Thorn, winner of the Cave Canem Poetry Prize and the Levis Reading Prize, and a finalist for the Kate Tufts Discovery Award and the Tom Gunn Award for Gay Poetry and a Lambda Literary Award. Boy with Thorn was also named one of the top 10 uh, debuts of 2015 by Poets and Writers magazine. Individual poems have appeared widely in the Boston Review, Feminist Studies, the Kenyan Review, the LA Times Review of Books, the New Republic, the New York Times, and Poetry Magazine. His writing has been supported by several foundations and fellowships, including the Whiting Foundation, the Lannan Foundation, the Civitella Ranieri Foundation in Italy, Poetry International Rotterdam, the National Endowment for the Arts, Cave Canem Foundation, Poetry Foundation, awarded him the Ruth Lilly Fellowship in 2012. He's currently the inaugural fellow in creative writing at the Center for African American Poetry and Poetics at the University of Pittsburgh and serves on the executive board for the Black Art Futures Fund. Poet Terrence Hayes writes about Ricky's work. Whether in praise songs, appraisals, or meditations, the poems of Boy with Thorn embody an ardent grace. Their accomplished structures house a fearless sensitivity. Ricky Laurentis fills history with his crucial blood, his stubbornness, his American tongue, and history in return fills him with crucial muses, from Auden to Hayden, stubborn ghosts such as Emmett Till and manifold expressions of culture, Southern, sexual, spiritual. The result is an extraordinary and ultimately irreducible debut. To paraphrase something Einstein once said, the true magic of this book can only be found inside this book. Ocean's poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, was a New York Times top 10 books of 2016. He's the winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize, the Whiting Award, the Tom Gunn Award, and the Forward Prize for Best First Collection. A Ruth Lilly Fellow from the Poetry Foundation as well. His honors include fellowships from the Lannan Foundation, the Civitella Ranieri Foundation, the Elizabeth George Foundation, the Academy of American Poets, the, and the Pushcart Prize. Fong's writings have been featured in The Atlantic, Harper's, The Nation, New Republic, The New Yorker, 
the New York Times, The Village Voice, and American Poetry Review, which awarded him the Stanley Kunitz Prize for Younger Poets. Ocean was born in Saigon, Vietnam. He lives in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he serves as an assistant professor in the MFA program for poets and writers at UMass Amherst. In The Guardian, Sandeep Paramar writes about night sky with exit wounds. The central conceits of the book, the dark sky imbued with the inscrutable meaning, the city smoldering, the ship and its family romance dashed on the rocks, and the expansive ocean between continents after which Vong's mother renamed him. Night sky with exit wounds resists resolution, suggesting ultimately that maybe the body is the only question an answer can't extinguish. Vong's poems, written with intelligence and tenderness, offer new spaces for becoming where the self questions its borders, remakes itself at the threshold of language. When I asked Ricky and Ocean to read together, I had no idea that they knew each other or that they had been reading together frequently these days. So I very much look forward to their conversation about their respective poems tonight. I'll leave you with a quote from Audre Lorde's essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, which I'm going to repurpose here for this larger context about the power and importance of poetry. Poetry is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams toward survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. The farthest horizons of our hopes and fears are cobbled by our poems, carved from the rock experiences of our daily lives. As they become known to and accepted by us, our feelings and the honest exploration of them become sanctuaries and spawning grounds for the most radical and daring of ideas. They become the safe house for that difference, so necessary to change and the conceptualization of any meaningful action. Please join me in welcoming Ricky Laurentis and Ocean Vuong. Boy with Thorn, 1st century BC, bronze. One, entered those shadows spoke his loneliness like a god. Two, this was new knowledge, the kind he had little business knowing, the mere risk of it making it all the more delicious. Three, a force out confession of forcing an end. Four, each push where the blood yawned like an opiate, each inch a hermeneutics of the self. Five, would you feed on such hurting? Would you drink so much? Six, was he so terrible a thing to look at? But was looked at. Seven, his face chiseled deliberate, his face a question gone unanswered. Eight, there could have been a thorn already inside, his tongue scratching its wrong, speaking its six troubles. Nine, how? Ten, there could have been a thorn already inside, the point in his eye, what makes the shadows their acutest when they lift and sprawl. Eleven, I keep thinking of the thorn as a marker, scrawler, which shapes the places both excused and forbidden in his body swamp. Twelve, violence thou shalt want, violence thou shalt steal and store inside. Thirteen, the spinario, fidele boy with a message. A mission, piccaninny, who would not stop for damage, the old story goes. Fourteen, shame, guilt, spleen, woe, shock, and want. Fifteen, he wanted them gone. I know all his deeper hurts. Poor gods, that lush resentment. Sixteen, but failed. They were greater dark, fouls and mystery, done things. Seventeen, take it. 
Don't you have to learn to take it eventually? 18, I told him the thorn was as a key, his body a lock. 19, I made him meet the key up with the lock. Turn 20, I told him Ricky. Turn 21, he did. An antichrysalis, a lyric, which is a piece of a prayer visible. 22, until he rewound, a new republic, a kingdom where not savagely he was king. 23, who could bear the wind? 24, who could feel the self demanding the self? 25, who could see his honesty, his face more handsome once the pain combed through, combed like a river, too clean for love. 26, violence thou shalt want, violence thou shalt steal and store inside. 27, he would devour it. 28, this was his body, his body finally his. 29, he shut the thorn up in his foot and told his foot, walk. That's how my book ends. Um, thank you. Um, thank you for everyone involved in bringing me an ocean here. It's always fun to read with ocean. We have done it a lot, so it feels familiar and nice and comfortable. Uh, thank you, Amra, and everyone who is diligently, logistically making this work. I know it's not easy to do. Thank you to the builders of this place that's really pretty and new. Um, it's, like, extremely new. Um, um, so, and, and thank you um, to the undergraduates and faculty who are here to listen to poems. And I agree that it's always the time to read poems, but especially in times when we are a little bit uncertain. Those are the moments. Um, speaking of uncertainty, I decided that I was going to do a flip and read more new poems than I do, like, old poems. So that's always an uncertain moment. Um, I'm going to read, like, maybe I'll throw in some Boy with Thorn because... You read it, might as well read some of that. But um, I don't know, I'm interested in hearing some of these poems out in the world. Um, but I don't want to go over my time, so let me do this. Um, one must be respectful. Okay. All right. So, because they're new, I don't really know. You know how you have a little poet banter, and you're like, blah, 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 blah. I was, doing, I was thinking this. I don't really have that yet. So, um, I'm not going to do it for most of these. So, this next one is just called Hymn, as in a church hymn, H-Y-M-N. There's a valley a man's work back makes, and there's a violence too. There's a river a man's low voice makes, and there's a violence too. There's a falcon a man's fierce attention makes, and there's a violence too. There's a way a man will turn at you, wakes, begging, I'm hurt, and there's his violence too. Turn, sudden color, beg, I alone, blameless, am hurt, and that's a violence too. There's a moment I'll say, listen, and all his violence chooses not to hear it, so that choice, blameless, random, red, becomes a violence too. Men choose the violences they deliver like mirrors choose the subjects of their debt. We look in them, and what is it we think we see? Pride, prejudice, come up his throat, a kiss to take all the while and quick the nearest man's side or his business or his stranger argument or any benefit of doubt or his acumen or his wit. And of course, he won't admit it, but his violence too. All men have it, take it in, even how I do, I own a violence too. That I try not, but I repeat it in the casual way I may say no or say please or have no ease against an image of being the one unliked. Though lately what I am trying to make make sense in me freak and more film is all upset and not a man and hardly was or ever will and sees no more the purpose for the violence in that claim. A man turns at you, to you, and claims he alone is hurt as if, it's, as if it is impossible his tall hubris hurt him first. Why be a man when there are valleys you can be? 
penetrate and you can walk them. Take in their honest expanse as a primer nature and see some shy ribbon of river move in patient wakes the very line a falcon takes returning to the falconer. Why be a man when it's the very idea of flight? You can be up tight in that fell space contesting the mirror. It's a very half shadow now bruising the ground as it chooses a ground, not in earth, but in itself. I think it means we can be some other work than we were raised, that I can strike out him for him and all that's violence too. For it's easy enough to conquer a man. I look in his eyes and grow pathetic. Um... One little thing I can say, I'm, the, the poems I'm reaching for or writing towards, they, they're the same themes, violence and beauty, as always. We're not going to leave those alone. Um, but I'm interested in, in trying to find a space for the body that I'm becoming and, uh, and wanting to give like sort of honor to that space without dismissing um, the certain violences and privileges that that same body can ma- maintain. Um, and about bodies, it also seems particularly useful to remind ourselves that they don't only exist as possible um, sites of violence or murder, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation we had, but they also exist as sites of, of pleasure and that we can reclaim that and, and really sit inside of it. And particularly uh, for those of us who are persons of color or queer or trans or women, um, we can reclaim that sort of erotic potential. Um, so to that end, I also want to quote another um, essay by Audre Lorde, and this is from her uh, essay called Uses of the Erotic, um, just to give sort of frame to where I'm coming from. And she reminds us, our erotic knowledge empowers us, becomes a lens through which we scrutinize all aspects of our existence, forcing us to evaluate those aspects honestly in terms of their relative meaning within our lives. And this is a grave responsibility. And in addition, there's one, uh, there's a, like a queer theorist, if there are any queer theorists, you know, junkies out there like me. Um, Leo Bersani in the essay called Is the Rectum a Grave? Question mark. I don't know. Maybe it is. Um, the first line to that essay, he says, there is a big secret about sex. Most people don't like it. So that's where we're about to go. Let's find out. Um, this is called 2019, as in two months from now, 2019. A month from now? Anyway. I could string him back up the tree if you like. Return his skin's meaning to an easy distance. Cold dust blaze and woolly brown him. You love how the blood muddies the original. The way it makes a stage of my speechifying this leeching capital from his dying like an activist. I know I'm not supposed to sing of his ringing penetrability, some hole I open and pose on a form, but all I see is bullets, bullets discerning him as years ago it was rope. I could pull it tighter, finger each bullet deeper if you like, an inch rougher, far enough to where it becomes that second heat, erotic. I could use the erotic if you like, so ungarish, bearing not too frank a mood, subtle, so you need it. Funny how some dark will move illicit if you close your eyes, the way, say, my black pleasure is named too explicit for a page, but this menace I put in it is not. I could yank and knot the rope, if you like him, like a strange fragment in them trees, and the word again spelled out about his neck would be the rope's predicate, to let wild pattern and fierce his moan. It is a tragedy. No, it is a sonnet. How I know already how he ends. 
but I can make him her if you like. Regender them to merely canvas for your empathy, soup for my mouth. Still, if I could but just get this blunt, burnt, lynched body up from on out the pocket behind my eye, all trees could be themselves again, all sound. I was thinking there about, you may, re you may recall from some history class, 1919 was a year of terrible political global abreast, but you know, across the world. Um, and it's interesting that we're about to be there. But particularly in America, it was also the year of what's called the Red Summer, which saw something close to a thousand um, uh, basically race riots and um, lynchings and vigilante mobs sort of pepper um, the nation. Um, from there, we get the story of William Brown, who's one man, man and I think Omaha, if I'm mistaken, if I'm correct, um, who was lynched and burned alive. And, you know, you can go look up all the rest of the casualties, usually black casualties. Um, and I don't think, you know, we, we say we remind ourselves that history repeats itself. And it's, it's a little bit morbid, but I think it's better that we go in with the knowledge rather than with the ignorance. So 2019 is next year, y'all. Um, to that end, it, it will get happier. Sex is not all bad. We'll get happier. Um, uh, I don't know if it was mentioned, but I did my graduate work at, in St. Louis. Um, and I graduated in 2013, and as you should remember, 2014 is when it quite literally blew up after the murder of Michael Brown. Um, and I think I probably would like St. Louis now. Um, there's an interesting thing that happens with resistance and mobilizations, communities sort of come together. But I certainly didn't like it then, and it was hard to like articulate why until that event happened, because I can, you can kind of sense, you can have a sort of body muscle sense of like, as I was walking down those streets, sort of being reminded or being told in some instances that you don't belong here or you shouldn't be here, et cetera. Um, the point is, is when 2014, I was actually at Chivatella, um, so it was like a Baldwin moment. I'm in this castle in Italy as America's on fire, it seems to me. Um, what a position to be in. It's not an easy position. You know, it's, you have to like really sit with your privilege at that moment, the privilege of being away and able to look. Um, but it didn't feel like a privilege because I feel completely not just tied in a sort of social way as a black person, but as a person who actually walked those streets. What to do at that moment? There's still things I don't know. I know I'm still trying to answer that, but I wrote this poem, and I'm going to share with you. It's called Continuance, 2014, Ferguson, Missouri. Forever here, Mr. Dark, and tricking me steaming from a manhole in Missouri or else you're damp between the motion of the trees, revealing the breezy discourse of those trees' black sound. I can see now how everything I learned of you is wrong, how an air of dumb assumption lounged on my brow, a liar, winking, claiming a shadow is as empty as my childhood vision of the falling sun meant emptiness. But every child knows what moves the wind at night, knows what leads some birds to develop their high, their unrest in the high green of some trees, or lower, what leans against that tree's bark. A man? Or is it the just barely intelligible idea of one? Head back, maybe eyes closed, moaning, working to hysteria, their erection rising like a haunted chain away from him. If I move closer, carrying a glass cup, if my mouth is that cup, Though I've known fear move as bravely in this world, move like a physical man, it can shoot a boy. So shoot me. Who said that? Was it really the black of my tongue? But how could any breed of blackness ever wish to be penetrated? 
I could tell you how a foot creaks even falling dead in the night. Could tell the red a mother cries when she feels that absence drop like pity inside her. But I cannot say what a bullet says as it enters a child's skin. But come in. You can enter me, Mr. Dark. Let tonight be the first night I deeper see the pregnant possibilities of your design, how your fingers move to build such attitudes, turning a moaning of the wind into a man, making what is a tease of grass at the hill into terror, now pleasure, then back to grass again. Aren't you the mirror in which all lights balance? Aren't you the line on which all lines cross? Anything lives in you, so that the dark over there can be the dark of Mike Brown, still full of brag, that the dark over here right now can be the dark of my own bastard mind that this dark come closest to my lips is a shadow's knowledge full not ever empty charitable as it is wicked risky as it is good fascination perversion and i move to it to you a shadow chaser hearing the birds make restlessness in the trees watching the man stroke velvet from his body head still back maybe eyes parted he's singing now he's at that point when i must surrender my knees to gravity and mouth ready get gone i'll choose what ground i lie on That was the image in my mind, just, you know, you remember the image of him um, just for four hours or something like that on the ground. And I just kept remembering it was viral, you know? Remember when things like that were viral? Um, there's just, like, a, such a lack of agency in that image. I mean, obviously, any kind of image of death, you know, suggests that. But there was just something about just the way he was just sort of left there. Um, it, Obviously, that wasn't his choice. There was something about that, just about agency, that just lodged in my brain. And I just wanted to write a poem in which the speaker chooses the ground that they lie on. Not going to get emotional, because sometimes it does. But speaking of that, um, the grounds in which I'm always moving are seeming to change. So I'm in Pittsburgh now, which is a, kind of a fun city. It's gray a lot. Um, but I'm originally from New Orleans, uh, which is much more colorful and warm. And I miss it because it's warm and it's a good place to be. Um, and so that's seeming to come up a, a little bit, too, in a way that I is not unsuspecting or I didn't expect it, but in a different way than it did come in, come in to Borbet Thorne. I guess I was sort of wrestling or thinking about, well, quite frankly, New Orleans under the revision, I would call it, of Katrina, um, and the revision was both positive and ne negative in some ways. And here, I, I think I'm writing poems about the New Orleans I have of memory in a certain way, or the like the New Orleans I'm creating in the lyric. Um, again, I told you these are new, so I don't really know what's happening. But um, this is a poem that certainly is set in New Orleans, and it's called Visible City. Washed in a green, webby light festival, playing a chord playing the nearmost exotic for a stir donation, a brass mirror, a song where the word sin stands out as thought to anti-Puritan but not anti-God, playing a flirt, saying you could land a landed kiss here, quick lick and later. This city washed more literally and more blue, with waters as close as cousin Cuba, as far as the far walk shores of my playful Brazil, so that there was this image, not just its people, not just our bodies puffy as a hemorrhoid against the waters advancing image that was flooded and if sense is true, sight like a deeper speech and art 
if that is true, then it is between these many poles the city is seen, the city, not just the given notion of the city, that screen we call myth, call the dark, but the brick and spit of it, iron, horseshit, the river, a mosquito vetting it for blood, mud, August, the cathedral in August. It is in these first the eyes built their purpose, build a line. New Orleans as that modern text, witnessed and revised by the light as radically by the water, which is history, which slips through your hands. The city is a ghost I wear. Isn't that fun to like write long sentence like that, you know? And then like, that's fun. That's how you know you're a poet. You just stay up all Saturday trying to write a long sentence. Isn't that, isn't that cute? Okay. Um, let's go to the book. Um, this is a poem. I wanted to read this because I remember, frankly, I wanted to write a poem about Spanish moss. Sometimes that happens. You're like, I just want to write a poem about apples. That's just what I want to do. Um, but not apples, Spanish moss, right? Um, uh, and I was, I was trying to write it because Spanish moss is cool. Like, you, we all, we're familiar with what Spanish moss I've been places and they did not know. And I was, that's how I knew I was too far away from home. I was like, you don't know what this is. We you know the things that fall from the trees. Say yes. Yes? Okay, cool. Um, trying to get y'all into the, into the moment here, you know? I'm like, um, but the problem is with that, and I think this is true for probably everyone, um, there is a kind of a representation of home, an emblem, if you will, that is true, but at the same time, um, under certain conditions, can become a caricature of the place or can be in a, in a different hand, can become a stereotype of the place, right? Um, for me, the Spanish moss is that for you, you can think right now, if you close your eyes and like, what is that? Not just for your literal home, your like, parents, but like wherever, what city or what state you're from, there's something that's like, you know, maple syrup, I, that's real, but at the same time, I might go up to Vermont and be like, where's the maple syrup? Is that right? Do they have maple syrup? Maple syrup? I don't know. But you know, like, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, that's, it seems like that's a phenomenon that is, no matter if you're from a big city, a small city, or whatever, that that's probably true. And so, as I was trying to write this, like, happy-go-lucky, or whatever, kind of poem about Spanish moth, that was one of the things that, that came up. Um, and so that led me into like, this research about the myths around Spanish moss, and that became, in a way, the poem. So this is called Writing an Elegy. But so tangled in the branches, they had to leave it. The conquistador's black beard cut from his head, whose neck had snapped. His deadness, the others had to burn then for the wind to take evenly away. If not for his lust, his sickness to chase, to claim her, if not for that native woman's quick intelligence, I'll climb in. This is what I see. The Spanish moss is convicted to its branches, gray, colonial, but in my century now, suspended so close each vein might well be a whole hanging fiction of my mind. The moss is a fiction of my mind, a screen swinging on its gothic hinges, making the light fussier as it swags, giving not just the trees, but my idea of them a Medusa look. That man, I think, had wanted to feed something in himself not worth feeding, had founded a world on it. What is it my mind wants to get at? Always extending, hungering, looking back, always tearing open again its own modernity, as if each thought is more than a little present moment it sounds like, but rays of the angle piercing me, having me imagine to build such antique violences in my head, it's a thorn. This moss has grown for ages now, can do nothing but snag and grow. What is it the mind won't unsee, beautiful flaw? In another version, the woman dies, and her husband raised her hair through the trees. 
those apparently are, I mean, those are true stories that I found in my research about the two ideas of where Spanish moths come from. One is from, I don't know, some kind of way a conquistador was like, well, no, he was trying to rape a native woman in the story and she was quicker than him. And so he gets tangled up and then he gets, his beard gets tangled up and then they come and cut off his head and that becomes a Spanish moth. That's the kind of happier story. Um, and, and the sadder story is that presumably he does capture her and then the husband of the native woman braids her hair through the trees. And I think, I just think that's America. I mean, like, you just can't make up things. You just, that's America. And those stories alone, both of those little sort of diptychs, if you will. Let's see what time I'm at. Okay. Oh, I have time. Look at that. That's fun. Okay. Um, kind of in that same place, so I, sort of that sort of conquistador world, um, I've been thinking a lot about, I told you I'm thinking about pleasure and erotics, so of course I'm thinking about bottoming. Um, and so one of the ways I'm thinking about the bottom is not just literal. We'll get to that a little bit sooner. Um, but I've been thinking about the bottom of slave ships and, like, bottomry and, like, all the kinds of, like, the, the bottom of the hill, like, all these sort of bottoms that... Uh, really are the fount of everything, it seems to me. We, we talk about the subaltern. Does the subaltern speak like that sort of like underbelly that could be for good or for bad or whatever? And I was thinking about the, 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 the bottom of the slave ship, the whole, so to speak, and just thinking about language and like how I come to language as a black poet, as a queer poet, and like the words literally in my mouth. And I just, you know, I was thinking about all of this and I ran into like a... a I didn't run into it. I saw a documentary that Fred Moten was a part of, and, and he said something that clicked and made it all click to me, in which he described that bottom of the slave ship or that hold as a, as a sort of language lab, as a place where, in a sort of sense, the English that we speak now, certainly the English that I speak, was founded, right? And for me, that was so um, exhilarating because, obviously, for, for reasons I don't probably shouldn't have to explain, that is an abject space, the bottom of a slave ship. In fact, all bottoms are kind of put into the abject space. But there's a place where we can like reclaim that as a productive space in which you know actual poetry or language or like America was founded and not just in the bad sense. So that's sort of what I'm in, like how do we flip the bottom? Like, okay. So this is this is that poem that sort of looks in that that space particularly. And it starts off with an epigraph by Robert Hayden's The Middle Passage, and it's mirage and myth and actual shore. It's called Vernacular is the One Slave You Know. Zipped up gold in that hold of that ship, what they did was fly, crave. Couldn't they have fantasized, shaping minutes to this rough ethics I speak, not English, but a sense of it, a scorpion I ease hearted and raw from my tongue's tip. So myth was them, was art, was jazz already, at least some premature ghost of her was shade with his hundred fouled teeth, neat, original, packed down the Atlantic's roaring mouth, afraid to be afraid. But there is one view of the Atlantic slave trade that's just a view of one boy barefooting some further Afric shore to see some ship's flag snap oddly in the wind and men who didn't have their color right. Lipped up smart in the dark of that ship, knowledge, what to have but have a photograph's memory. Who can't see his mother's hands as captive beside him stretch hunger for that shit light or hear in her falling sighs the death of the first idea? I say this is true. At bottom, at bottom of the bottom of the ship was a history earned. 
There's this counsel in my ear that is my ear that says a slave can't know like this, speak like this to sin to be type authentic. But I say someone needs them to. I do. So I write it. Imagine the imagination's power of made this once healthy with desire, not to raise categories or to kill. One could build a home then, finally. One could resurrect a language light enough to fit our flying into. Beautiful bottom, beautiful shame. The way he writhed beneath the other man argued his loneliness. But he wasn't just a blank measure waiting to sound. However much an O his mouth made, he wasn't just an O thrusting back up against what is almost like a finger, though it isn't, always needing to be touched like a finger, to be held. I'm lonely. My waist cinched inward like some vintage Japanese fan, the clever blade of my back working inch by inch toward a pleasure half mine, the way fire pleases, wax pleases. What does possession mean? No, really, tell me that at this moment, someone beside myself can feel how many times I shudder. Asked if I like it, I like it. I speak out those three syllables, mess myself. The point is, I think, to empty. It feels good. To be two men, no two bodies interlocked in a sentence still forming. We dance the dance that says, I want you, come closer, Come in me. No, really, he said as a whisper, boy, no, flesh, he want to be possessed. Because, you see, he had been removed from his body then, per usual. His beauty, like a talisman offered, his woundedness revealed. I think I'll just read two more poems. Two more poems. This one is so new, I don't know what I could even say about it. So we're just going to read it. Um, it's called, is it called this? We'll find out. It's called Integrity. Some days it's wind depends in light measure for the river to sketch its urgency. See, just there, the waves turn back against their own material like a heady argument that there might be authority in this. That same voice saying stuff like the river's too dark, always been to drink, too dark to face. But the river's not too dark to admire, is it? It's just black enough. Whatever safety returns when I close my eyes, meeting that lone severity of self, which is integrity, which is the wish to be whole, known entire, gritty, like a mineral coming out of the earth, brazen choice, amethyst, luck, jade, diamond, cum, lysolite, which unlike the others is made by collision against the faces of the earth, any meteorite slammed down to the very consonant as hard time. Though it's true, there can be cracks, cleavage as along a border, fissure, error versus erosion, which is what that river do right now against the ground and its loaded idea, stability, love. And I think what I'm trying to say is you made a fool of me, Mr. Dark, Mr. Sagittarius with his bowed weather, the way always the wounded make fools of who they try to love. I tried to love him, tried so hard what I, I had broke, couldn't say I don't have voice enough, couldn't try doubt, couldn't ask is the problem not to make room for doubt, but find out what with its pleasures can be done. 
It's beautiful some days this far south, this far late in the day, and the day's still with us, and the summer's longer, and crouched and buckled up trees signifying a hate that's still with us or with us, and it's terrifying too, love. What is the self really to what is the secret of my desire? I have so much this grounded mean to be whole, known entire, and not at all, to be held both in vacuums and communities of pleasure. What is it to be naked, bending among desire and uneasiness, a desire in uneasiness that pleasure makes easier, if not enough? We face each other with nothing to assure us about the meaning of the force that carries us one to the other, which is when, when's requests of river work again, which is approaching friendship, which is a kind of better thing than pleasure, neighbor, a surer love, a chance meeting in the street, a look, a recognition, a seeing in each other, each other's image of the dark beauty, which replaces everything, I think. Law, nature, people can love one another. Love, rule, grammar, people can love one another. And then some won't. And then we didn't. And like that, we're children again. Too much free authority, too much flesh, carbon, place, tumbling down a levee toward a future, a little grass come into their face. And I will end with an ephrastic poem, because apparently that's what I do. I write ephrastic poems. Uh, no, it's true. I like that idea. Um, and thank you for listening to, like, new poems. That's crazy. Um, this one, I'm more confident about this. It's thinking about a painting by um, Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, one of his later paintings. Um, the title is called Writing with Death, the title of his painting. Um, you don't really, I mean, none of my infrastructure poems, you have to really see the painting to, to do it. But it matters because it's a large painting, and it's, it's brilliant. It has, like, this really sort of, you know, you want to say it's gold, but it seems more like an oxidized copper of the background. Um, so it's dying, you know, like literally the paint is sort of like dying as you go. And there's like a figure that's two-dimensional uh, of sort of a skeletal figure, literally, that's on a skeletal horse. Um, you should look it up and you should just like weep when you look at it. Um, that's what I do on my free time. Um, and so when I don't have that weeping, I write this poem. I wrote this poem. So this is Vulnerability or Riding with Death, 20th Century Acrylic Crayon Canvas. Then I can make each wound itself an eye, a womb, a way of seeing out upon a world that did act against me, yes, left some injury. Him, my harshener, my rider, who I truly fuck with, I ride him from the zero's place, all bottom, that I know could know this way to pretender seeing, of freedom. I mean, I fuck with a sin, first word for blood, like through that canon law would find and did right friendship, rest, pleasing repetition. Did I know him as a music then? No. Call it the law of caught mirrors, moment when no awkwardness, one face faces the other and together seem to say, I'll make some infinite repeating more of you. That's true, right? That's half a reason why I even care to look at him, my eyes, these wounds of power. Attraction is what sex claims to be. Is that it? But I wonder why my eyes do work like this, fit, attracted to the shapes of things first, shape of his body, or how he's some black atlas shouldering that shape and me calling the burden beauty. He fine as hell, one tongue calls another speech or intimacy, no matter. But trust, I'm fine myself again. I am this breed of grammar to lie and let his nerve, his honesty slip slick, servile and hard into what mirror my interior holds. What we have is the body. Is that it? 
Like my body were some ancient well, inverted tower, orrieto, no more for water than to loiter this prayer of refuge in. Never mind. I think you know the drill. Come in. You only need take each stair, stone by stone, to travel half the double helix toward that bottom's friendship, damp, maddening, and deep as dark does go to make all shapes irrelevant. Is it the dark, finally, the one shape we can know? Is it blackness? Should I turn up? Dare I? Why not disturb the lit universe? Who I fuck with isn't so much only a matter that we fuck or could, but that he leads me to the root of the word vulnerable, which is myself, and bid me kiss it. It's possible the darkness hold at once and easily all simultaneity. To live, to almost die, shadow and be dead, faith, apology, time. Let him press himself further on my vision. Let him deeper scar me, though with my consent. Then I will know freedom in the shape of his body. How his arm swung so casually at his slick, most naked side becomes my eyes' theater. Him that eases me I truly fuck with. Is that it? I see now how the veins of his forearms come up to the very surface of my seeing requires kind desire old for me. Death is revision that I would bray like a buck consciousness in animal gold. I know this time afterward he lets go his thirsty hold of me, moment when he turns away his face, his front and tire stretches, rises so that his back, the very crown of his shoulder, stands up, apparent accent, Basquiat's above me. It is strength, finally, not failure, not abandon, I'll see. How the deep melanin of his skin repeats me. We are not endangered. It is not all times true. Nobody knows my name. Once I saw it as the cruelest joke that I'd be called to him or any man when it's been black men's masks so long hurt me. But look how well the hair clevers down his jaw, above his, leap, his lip, speech or intimacy cuts against my cooing touch. I say it's infinite. Such I see it's some hurts who could be welcomed. Yes, the idea one needs. Or is it the question... What would it be you do really? The word freedom. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me okay? It's a good volume? Okay, thank you. Um, thank you so much for being here and, and for having us. It's always a pleasure um, to read with Ricky. Um, Riggy and I, in a sense, grew up, uh, at least our literary lives, uh, into our literary lives uh, in New York City um, almost ten, nine, ten years ago now. So it's such a great pleasure to um, watch and flourish alongside um, Ricky in this moment of great wealth uh, in American poetics. So thank you for being here and for having us. Um, like Ricky, I also don't have much banter. Uh, I feel like we're, we're like, us two, we're like the cats of the poetry world, <laughs> which, is, which is always very nice and, and like he said, um, comforting. You guys. Brushing my teeth at two in the morning, I say, over my shoulder, you guys, you guys, I'm serious. What are we going to make of this mess? My voice muffled with wintergreen foam. What are we going to do now that it hurts when I look at those I love like you two? 
You who have been through so much together, the thick and skin of it, I'm proud of you both, I say. As the foam pinkens through my lips, I'm told our blood is green, but touches the world with endings. My name, a place where I've waited for collisions. You guys, are you listening? I'm sorry for being useful only in language. Are you still with me? I ask as I peer into the tub where I place them gently down, the two white rabbits I had found on Harris Street the way back from Emily's where we watched American Dad on her mom's birthday, her mom who would have been 56 this year. We ate Rocky Road in bowls painted with blue tulips. I'm too tired, she said, to be this happy. And we laughed without moving our hands. Perhaps the rabbits are lovers or sisters. Sometimes it's hard to tell gender from breathing. Earlier, I had scooped them from the pavement. They were crushed, but only kinda. One had a dented half face, the other's back flattened like a courage sock. I cradled them wetly in my sweatshirt, but now the tub is a red world, save for the silent island of fur flickering in my fugitive words. Guys, I say, just wait for me, all right, just Wait a while longer. I swear I'll leave this place spotless when I'm done. A lot of this book, uh, maybe a lot of my poetics, is always interested in uh, notions of uh, American violence and how all echelons of American life and all of its stratifications is uh, imbued with it. Uh, even down to the way uh, we celebrate um, ourselves. Of the icing. We made it, baby. We're riding in the back of the black limousine. They have lined the road to shout our names. They have faith in your golden hair and pressed gray suit. They have a good citizen in me. I love my country. I pretend nothing is wrong. I pretend not to see the man and his blonde daughter diving for cover that you're not saying my name and it's not coming out like a slaughterhouse. I'm not Jackie O yet and there isn't a hole in your head. A brief rainbow through a mist of rust. I love my country, but who am I kidding? I'm holding your still hot thoughts in, darling. My sweet, sweet Jack. I'm reaching across the trunk 
for a shard of your memory, the one where we kiss and the nation glitters, your slumped back, your hand letting go, you're all over the seat now, deepening my fuchsia dress, but I'm a good citizen, surrounded by Jesus and Dallas and ambulances, I love this country. The twisted faces, my country, the blue sky, black limousine, my one white glove glistening pink with all our American dreams. Yeah, a lot of my work is also sad. Um, I'm trying to look for joy, but um, but I, I actually, in fact, I actually think that um, poetry is so joyful, despite of all that, or even because of sadness. Because we come, it, 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 when we read poems, we realize that our sadness is not necessarily private that we don't necessarily possess um, a singular um, sadness, even though they are very idiosyncratic. And there's joy in finding that. There's joy in realizing that, oh, you too. Um, at least that's the joy for me. Uh, I grew up in Hartford, um, you know, the bordering state, and uh, we, were, we were hit by what's now called the opioid epidemic. Uh, quite early Purdue Pharma, which made Oxycontin, was in Stanford. So that was a big epicenter. Um, and so I lost a lot of friends. And my, my sort of childhood, my Bildungsroman, um, was peppered with wakes and funerals. And so a lot of this book is uh, embedded with that elegy. Anaphora as coping mechanism. Can't sleep. So you put on his gray boots, nothing else, and step inside the rain. Even though he's gone, you think, I still want to be clean. If only the rain were gasoline, your tongue a lit match, and you can change without disappearing. If only he dies the second his name becomes a tooth in your mouth. But he doesn't. He dies when they wheel him away, and the priest ushers you out of the room, your palms two puddles of rain. He dies as your heart beats faster, as another war coppers the sky. He dies each night you close your eyes and hear his slow exhale, your fist choking the dark, your fist through the bathroom mirror. He dies at the party where everyone laughs and all you want is to go into the kitchen, make seven omelets before burning down the house. All you want is to run into the woods and beg the wolf to fuck you up. He dies when you wake, and it's November forever. A Hendrix record melted on a rusted needle. He dies the morning he kisses you for two minutes too long when he says, wait, followed by, I have something to say, and you quickly grab your favorite 
pillow and smother him as he cries into the soft and darkening fabric you hold still until he's very quiet until the walls dissolve and you're both standing in the crowded train again look how it rocks you back and forth like a slow dance seen from the distance of years you're still a freshman you're still terrified of having only two hands and he doesn't know your name yet but he smiles anyway his teeth reflected in the window reflecting your lips as you mouth hello your tongue a lit match Uh, two more poems. This is a longer one. It's um, it exists as uh, the apparatus is um, a series of notebook fragments, notebook entries, and uh, I was incredibly interested in in the notebook, the diary, the journal, as um, this vehicle of queer preservation, um, because often uh, we we tell our, our journals more. Um, than what we tell even our families and loved ones, and and I wanted to celebrate uh, that that form as 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 the site of queer possibility um, and and in poetry with a capital P. Notebook fragments. A scar's width of warmth on a worn man's neck. That's all I wanted to be. Sometimes I ask for too much just to feel my mouth overflow. Discovery. My longest pubic hair is 1.2 inches. Good or bad? 7.18 a.m. Kevin overdosed last night. His sister left a message, couldn't listen to all of it. That makes three this year. I promised to stop soon. Spilled orange juice all over the table this morning. Sudden sunlight I couldn't wipe away. All through the night, my hands were daylight. Woke at 1 a.m. and, for no reason, ran through Duffy's cornfield. Boxers only. Corn was dry. I sounded like a fire for no reason. Grandma said, in the war, they would grab a baby, a soldier, at each ankle and pull, just like that. It's finally spring, daffodils everywhere, just like that. There are over 13,000 unidentified body parts from the World Trade Center being stored in an underground repository in New York City. Good or bad? Shouldn't heaven be super heavy by now? Maybe the rain is sweet because it falls through so much of this world. Even sweetness can scratch the throat, Grandma said. So stir the sugar well. 4.37 a.m. How come depression makes me feel more alive? Life is funny. Note to self, if a guy tells you his favorite poet is Jack Kerouac, there's a very good chance he's a douchebag. 
Note to self, if Orpheus were a woman, I wouldn't be stuck down here. Why do all my books leave me empty-handed? In Vietnamese, the word for grenade is bum, from the French bum, meaning apple. Or was it American for bum? Woke up screaming with no sound, the room filling with a bluish water called dawn. Went to kiss grandma on the forehead, just in case. An American soldier fucked a Vietnamese farm girl. Thus, my mother exists. Thus, I exist. Thus, no bonds equals no family, no me. Yikes. 9.47 a.m. Jerked off four times already. My arm kills. My arm, like all arms, can kill. In Vietnamese, the word for eggplant is grenade tomato, thus nourishment defined by extinction. I met a man tonight, a high school English teacher from the next town, a small town, maybe I shouldn't have. But he had the hands of someone I used to know, someone I was used to. The way they formed brief churches over the table as he searched for the right words. I met a man, not you. In his room, the Bible shook on the shelf from candlelight. His scrotum, a bruised fruit, I kissed it lightly, the way one might kiss a grenade before hurling it into the night's mouth. Maybe the tongue is also a key. Yikes. I could eat you, he said, brushing my cheek with his knuckles. Maybe the tongue is also a pin. I'm going to lose it when Whitney Houston dies. I met a man. I promise to stop. A pillaged village is a fine example of perfect rhyme. He said that. He was white, or maybe I was just beside myself next to him. I forgot his name by heart. I wonder what it feels like to move at the speed of thirst, if it's fast as lying on the kitchen floor with all the lights off. Christopher with a K. 6.24 a.m., Greyhound Station, one-way ticket to New York City, $36.75. 6.57 a.m., I love you, Mom. When the prison guards burned his manuscripts, Wing Chi Tian couldn't stop laughing, the 283 poems already inside him. Kevin, I dreamed I walked barefoot all the way to your house in the snow. Everything was the blue of smudged ink, and you were still alive. There was even a light, the shade of sunrise, inside your window. God must be a season, Grandma said, looking out at the blizzard, drowning her garden. My footsteps on the sidewalk, the smallest flights. Dear God, if you are a season... 
Let it be the one I pass through to get here. Here. That's all I wanted to be. I promise. Uh, and I'll close with this poem. Uh, growing up in New England, I was surrounded by um, hunting. And uh, hunting was so interesting to me because it was this enactment of this performance of hegemonic uh, masculinity in which um, male identity or maleness was in a way um, necessitated by conquest and destruction. A man is measured by what he destroys and what he owns, right? Um, but I always, for some reason, empathize with the deer, the hunted um, in, in, in these uh, mythologies. So this, this, is a voice in, this poem is in the voice of a deer. The smallest measure... Behind the fallen oak, the Winchester rattles in a boy's early hands. A copper beard grazes his ear. Go ahead, she's all yours. Heavy with summer, I am the doe whose one hoof cocks like a question ready to open roots. And like any God-forsaken thing, I want nothing more than my breaths. To lift this snout, carved from centuries of hunger, toward the next low peach bruising in the season's clutch. Go ahead, the voice thicker now. Drive her home. But the boy is crying into the carcass of a tree, cheeks smeared with snot and chipped bark. Once I came close enough to a man to smell a woman's scent in his quiet praying, as some will do before raising their weapons closer to the sky. But through the grained mist, that makes this morning's minutes, this smallest measure of distance. I see two arms unhinging the rifle from the boy's grip, its metallic shine sharpened through wet leaves. I see the rifle, the rifle coming down, then gone. I see an orange cap Touching an orange cap. No, a man bending over his son the way the hunted for centuries must bend over its own reflection to drink. Thank you. We can just talk up here. We're friends. <laughs> can, can I ask you about fashion? Sure. Because, you know... This is so loud. <laughs> we, we knew each other 
nine, ten years now, and probably longer than that. Yeah, like it's, during it's, undergrad we met. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. So that's you're, right. Like you're you're starting at when we graduate. Like it's like right. fifteen years. Fifteen years. It's like crazy. It's a life. That old. And <laughs> and um, we were such different people, mm-hmm. and it was so uh, amazing to to watch uh, Ricky um, from a distance, but also closely really celebrate fashion and I'm really curious of how fashion and the body um, informs your poetics mm-hmm. and your relationship um, to fashion as a way of being in the world as a way to be in the world deliberately because I think for me that's what a lot of fashion is is to how do we curate um, articulation with clothing as well as with language yeah um I feel like this is ditto for you. So I feel like this is like it's, it's interesting. Um, when you said that you want to talk about fashion, immediately I thought about the verb like fashioning to fashion, um, and like that's. Um, I don't really think I'm fashionable, but people curse don't, me out when don't. I say that. But I really you don't. Stop. I don't. I just like pretty things. Um, but you know, I don't really spend a lot of time. But. To answer your question... Um, you going to tell us you woke up like this? Uh, <laughs> maybe. Um, but, I mean, it had to do with coming, you know, with the fashion. It's, I, I look at fashion like fashioning myself. And, like, the poem I read is sort of, like, disavowing. Actually, related to your last poem, how you talk about how, like, masculinity is tied to conquest and, as I would say, violence and all these things. And I'm just not, I'm just over it. I don't even want to, you know, there's a lot of, I'm going to speak for myself, do not feel offended when I say, but I'm tired of, like, trying to fix masculinity. Or, like, you know how they're always like, let's find a new way. I'm like, it's over. It's broke. When the car is broke, not working no more, you get another car. So, or you get something else. You get a magic carpet or something. So... I, I, that was sort of the, this is like a way of me thinking about it, articulating it now, but over the times that you're talking about, I certainly, I had to deal with like these notions of masculinities, which I was always insufficient to, I always felt insufficiently masculine or feminine, to be honest, Um, and I also didn't like my body, period, I just, I had serious body dysphoria I had probably gender dysphoria as well undiagnosed but like later on when I found language for that I was like that's exactly what it was um and so I couldn't this is why I'm like okay yeah maybe I do like fashion but it's hard even to claim that because to me um for a long time I hated clothes I hated going put things on my body I hated like you know, this is why I like Frank Bedard because he talks about like the fact of the body and like having to deal with it and having like there's a kind of transness in his poetry, even though I don't think yeah. he's a trans poet necessarily. But um, over time, I, you know, it sounds you know it's not corny. I loved myself. I felt I, I came into loving myself. I came into loving my image, um, and now I can do stuff with it. Now I'm you know. No, I'm fine. So that's great. Right? I mean, like, that's that's how it looks. And I feel like that's probably similar, because I remember an image of both of us, like, an undergraduate. We did not talk. We were in the corner, uh, like, Ooh, don't look at us. We're just, like, and now here we are. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it does get a little better. It does, uh, yeah, a little I don't, sometimes. I, don't know. I actually don't know if it gets better. Y- you get better. You get better. We get better yeah. at being inside yeah. the body yeah. and realizing that we become more useful to ourselves and I think that has to do with learning more words um, mm-hmm. for me, learning more ideas and mm-hmm. realizing that 
like I said before, like my my you know crisis, this this chronic crisis um, of the self um, and all everything that that comes with the intersection of the American body through historic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not alone in it. You mm-hmm. realize, oh wait a minute, you know. And I think for me, that's why when I read classical literature, particularly Homer, mm-hmm. it feels closer to me than things that were written in mid-century America mm-hmm. with American realism of Raymond Carver and Hemingway. Um, you know, Homer felt cl- closer to me because the violence was so explicit, but it had the agency of mythology. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of my way of entering into that space. Mm-hmm. You know? I totally agree. Like, yeah. I was, I'm rereading The Metamorphoses, which is probably the first trans text, or one of the first trans yes. texts, if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. Now, not all those stories are wonderful. In fact, many are quite horrifyingly, you know, patriarchal or homophobic, but there are little gems. <laughs> you know, but it's like all little things where I'm like, oh my God, there's like, there's like agency in, 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 in transforming or revising or changing yourself and becoming... Um, that may be one language, becoming who you were or just finding the form to who you always were, which is why I think there's an interesting trans sort of way to look at that. Um, and I find myself um, more attracted to like that, like very ancient texts, metaphysical texts, John Donne, yeah, yeah. you know, with his crisis of everything. It seems to me it's like, yeah, that's, that's actually more... Um, applicable to my life it seems for better or for worse than yeah some of those hardcore realists of the mid-20th century who are out who are because they're so real are terribly out of date now like you can read them to be like a snapshot right Mm -hmm. there but like yeah yeah yeah. it's timeless yeah i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah you're right it's like i was like what is a duvet you know what's a chivalry what is that that's from yeah anyway we can do this all night. You have questions? Questions? Yeah, yeah come Someone's on. coming questions. up. Yeah. Hi, thank you guys for coming. Um, I was wondering if there was like a particular literary work that kind of served as a catalyst for you getting into writing, or if you can think of one that really like propelled that spirit and passion for literature early on at all. Uh, several ideas come to mind. Um, the comics. My grandfather used to read, read the comics to me. I always say this story um, because I think I mean, we had books, but it was like, um, what, what did my mother read? Like, you know, the little books that you get on the, the, the aisle right before you get your groceries. She had a lot of those books. There was reading a lot in my house, but it wasn't necessarily high literature, necessarily. But I don't think that that, I think that's even better because she was always reading. And my grandfather was always reading uh, little magazines or comics and things like that. And I, he would read to me um, pretty much every night until you passed. Um, and that ritual, that ceremony, um, still sustains me to this day. So this is the act of reading, whether or not it was a you know, particular kind of literature. Um, so that's the first thing that came to mind. Um, and then, like, so that's, let's imagine I'm, like, zero to, like, 12 years old for that. And then, like, way later, right, um, you know, graduate school, maybe a little bit undergrad into graduate school, uh, Wallace Stevens, <laughs> you know, Connecticut. Like, um, I think it's really important to find, for me, it was important to find a person to whom I could 
honestly say that I admire his craft, but I don't like him. <laughs> you know, I don't like I don't what I imagine and what I've read in biographies of his person. But he wouldn't like me either. You know, he would be very upset about me being uh, either either of us. And like being a sort of friend and enemy, which is an actual society in Hartford. Um, that that having that kind of person in my my canon is useful for me because it's like okay, I learn I'm learning something about strategy and skill, but at the same time I'm going to argue you down. And that kind of engagement is useful. And you see, like you know, T. S. Eliot used to do that. They used to argue with each other all the time. I don't know why we don't argue. Not I'm not talking about be shady, but I mean like like in the work, like pushing against and like because it's not necessarily to push down. Mm-hmm. It's to create some some newer thing. Um, so for me, finding Wallace Stevens like a like a dead person to do that with was useful. Um, so we got, we got the comics and Wallace Stevens. <laughs> yeah. for, for me, I I often insist that the first literature that I touched was um, the oral tradition in my family, and I think that's still that's still true. Like if I think of my personal uh, bookshelf. Um, my proverbial bookshelf. It, it would be, you know, James Baldwin, Lorca, Rambo, mm-hmm. Emily Dickinson, Lucille Clifton, and my grandmother, um, Lady Bai. And because I think for me, uh, I, I came from a family of storytellers. Um, I was just the first to write it down. And I'm, I'm not um, new to this um, in that lineage. And so when I think about lineage, um, my family were the first one to say, you know, the word is a portal. We, we sat in that apartment in Hartford with nothing. With what's in a city with such a rich literary tradition, Harry Beecher Stowe, Mark Twain, as Ricky said, Wallace Stevens, um, that never really considered our, our presence. Um, you know, not that it was, they had to, they just didn't. Um, and I was surrounded by um, these storytellers and the way they spoke, the way they told their stories, you realize that it's incredibly edited, um, whether it's their own stories or folklore that they've carried down from thousands of years. You realize that this is, wait, this is a master craft. It's a master class in storytelling. What's being left out? How does the plot move? The hesitations, the pauses, the metaphors the ancillary uh, information. And, and I still go back to that. And it's almost like this moving um, archive. It's a living, you know, our, our, our elders are living libraries. And uh, in the same way that they're also Wikipedia, right? That they're constantly this, this, this communal um, updating of a work. And that was the, the site for me uh, of understanding the power of creating another world out of this one. Um, and then immediately, you know, uh, when I was about 18, 19, I touched on Rambo and Lorca. Um, mostly Lorca because of, I think, his uh, ecstatic um, engagement with oppression um, under Franco's regime and uh, th- that led to the, the, the Spanish Civil War. And ultimately, his, his queerness and his assassination for being queer. Um, and, and I think it was the first time that that there was this, you know, a hero who didn't make it. And that sounds like a, like a very morbid way to be inspired, but, you know, I, I saw, like, 
a reckoning that this is the price that back in 1936, not, not that far from where we are now, the price of, of writing poems was your life, the price of being who you are, the price of, of, of pursuing your art as a queer person of color uh, was your life. And, and I think in that way, he became both uh, a warning and uh, uh, an inspiration of, of what, what I could be. I have, I have a question as this person comes up. Yeah. Um, just, I don't know whether, how to describe it, but I'm, I'm interested, the world making you say, like, so you were born in Vietnam and you grew up in Connecticut and maybe the word is distance, like how does distance, how do you see distance working in your, or maybe closeness, maybe yeah. it's intimacy or maybe it's migration. There are many words I could use to yeah. describe it, but I'm interested in like, because what I hear you saying again and again is like you're interested in making world. You're interested in making persona. You do make persona, and they—they're both one. It, they seem to me, as I read it, distant from you, but also they collapse. Yeah. So I wonder about like the actual geography of like. Do you think in those terms? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was thinking of um, this great essay that Philip B. Williams just recently published mm-hmm. about persona, yes. and and in relation to the poet I's work. Mm-hmm. And one thing that that really. He, he really articulated what I felt. And we talked about this at Yale last year, too, about speaking, not speaking, not speaking or speaking for the dead and not for the living. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, the one thing that really clicked in that essay was he said that the eye overwhelms mm-hmm. the, the mask so that she's always there. And I think that's, for, for me, the pleasure um, and the goal in, in persona when I, when I engage it is that we, there's never a facade of I'm going to be somebody else right. for a minute. It's just a, this tangent um, and a means to be more yourself than ever. And I think in that poem of the I Sing, you know, um, Jackie O might have never said we made it baby, right? It's an Americana, um, cartoonish, exaggerated, and perhaps I would argue queer version. It's almost drag, you know, um, and I think that signaling that that of the extremity um, is both very distant because I, I you know, it's I don't really embody the, um, Jackie O, but it's also very close to who I am, um, and I think closeness is actually how um, I see things, particularly when it comes to epigenetic trauma. When and there's more studies of this now, where you know the war back there or the war 40 years ago was actually very, very close when we talk about PTSD, when we talk about um, inherited traits. I mean, there's a lot of studies with um, survivors of the Holocaust and their children and their grandchildren um, who still have nightmares mm. of the camps that they've never seen with, in the, with themselves. You know, our genes change. And I think it's very, very close. Um, and it still informs everything we do. And I think it's important for me um, to look at this country in relation to collapsed time and, and deconstructing um, this linear trajectory because linearity is also distance. Mm-hmm. Right? When we do the timeline, it's a tick on the timeline. And the further we get away, the closer we get to amnesia. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, I think we were talking about that at Rutgers. You see, we've been all over the world. And we, and like, Because um, it reminded the epigenetic trauma, it reminds me of like the mitochondrial like how your grandmother's mitochondria, you have your grandmother's mitochondria and you, and whatever trauma she endured or survived, um, 
it, it changes your DNA so that that's the DNA that you have. Yes. And so, and then you think about all the cultures that move matrilineally, you know, Jewish culture, I would argue, black cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the, like, you can't, like, the, you can't get over it because it is, it, you are it in a certain way, right? And, you know, and so, like, that, that stayed with me too. You used the story of the butterflies, I think. Yeah, yeah. You remember the butterfly? Yeah. Um, anyway, there was a question. We yeah. could be up here talking all night. Hi, thank you for being here. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, how has the language actually affected your poetry? Like English? Like English or language in general? Language in general. Okay, great. Um, Well, the Vietnamese language is monosyllabic, so it requires very, very keen listening. So if you're a child growing up with, you know, three four Vietnamese women, like I did, um, you really had to listen. Um, for example, the word M-A, right? Ma. Ma is ghost. Ma is grave. Ma is but, like but this and but that. Ma is horse, right? Ma, 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 ma. So if you listen, if you listen poorly, the, the sentence is gone. Um, and so I think that... It started to inform how I listened to English. I listened to it syllable by syllable. Um, you know, detonation, and I just keep seeing the word nation in detonation. Um, and I, I titled one of my poems like that, the word um, laughter inside the word slaughter. And so it, it's, it, it's inherently so, you know, it, it made the units of English um, smaller to me, smaller bricks. And which is perfect for a poet breaking lines, um, counting syllables, or what have you. So Vietnamese, in a way, taught me how to listen to English more carefully. Yeah, similarly, I think I think it's I think that's a phenomenon you'll find if once you step outside literally the language, if you learned another language, you'll learn. So if you you're studying Spanish, for, for example, um, you'll learn the grammar of English through the study of Spanish. So for me, I. Um, I studied Latin for like four years in high school, um, and then I went on to Italian. And I'm pretty sure it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure in Italian, ma is also ba. But mm-hmm. and I'm like, because something it was like something just lit in my head. I was like, whoa! But that's colonization. We'll get to that. Uh, so, but like, um, there is something around, for me. I guess it wouldn't be. It's not. It's not Latin. It's not monosyllabic. But it does something. Most people don't know. Like there was no punctuation in the way that the the endings of Latin words like determine what parts of speech there are so if they're dative they're, they're whatever etc so you could put it in different any order that you want which may be for kind of really expressive poetry because you could like rhyme all the time um, but it also meant for these kind of complex syntactical situations which are completely a part of like what I'm interested in like that's the reason why I like to write a long sentence right because it's like how do I it feels like a puzzle you know like I'm first of all I'm trying to write something which is always who knows what it's going to end up to, but like just to try to figure out how to make a sentence literally go on for as long as it can. And I've written long, I mean, I do this all the time. I have no life. Just write long sentences. <laughs> like just to figure out how the grammar and the syntax can work. Um, and that's something also I learned from a poet like Carl Phillips, who's also a classic, you know, Latin sort of scholar. And so I think um, when I'm hearing from you and when I'm kind of trying to echo is that like, the language, like going outside the English, going outside the language, actually um, honed in our 
English in a certain way. And it's not, that's probably not a mistake. If you think, I always think about English as just like imperialism. <laughs> I mean, that's why English is all over the place. German, French, mm-hmm. Normans. It's like it's a, it's a history of being an imperialist force and also being imperialized. Mm-hmm. I always think about, like, what would happen if the Romans never went over to the British Isles? Mm-hmm. Maybe none of us would be here. Like, so, like, it's like it also has this, like, this, this, this ghost of itself being, like, we don't speak Gaelic. We don't speak these sort of, like, Britons, you know? Like, yeah. so English is really interesting in that way of being elastic and, it steals. It steals from all kinds of languages, and suddenly, uh, suddenly you have like rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? You know, like you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I don't know that that's my way of yeah. sort of seeing how the lang- how language itself affects the poems. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you all. That's good.